Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com and of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. We are all in search of truth. Let us not be so blinded with prejudice as to be disgusted with its wrappings and fail to find the fair treasure so snugly ensconced within. The words of devout spiritualist preacher Dr. E. Winchester Stevens in his account of a spiritual possession that took place deep in the American Midwest in the spring of 1878. Spanning several weeks, it was a curiously prolonged and public possession that was witnessed by the entire town of Watsika, a small town of 1,500 people in Iroquois County. Amongst numerous strange occurrences, it is the tale of a young girl named Laurency Venom and the peculiar spiritual embodiment of Mary Roth. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 3, Episode 6. I hope you're all doing really well. This is episode six of the third season, but who'd have thought it? It's the 50th main episode of all time. So that's a seriously awesome landmark. Um, I'm really kind of like chuffed to pieces that the podcast is still alive after 50 episodes and getting stronger every day. So, you know, that's that it's been an awesome 50 episodes. There's actually been a hell of a lot more than 50 episodes, but they're kind of bonus episodes and things like that. So this is the 50th mainline main episode. Anyway, that's enough clapping on about that for now. And we'll get back to it at the end because got a little promotion going on just to celebrate. But for now, just want to say thank you to all the newest patrons. Uh, we've got Jeanette, Heidi, Christina, Crystal, Brian, Paisley, Sabrina and Terry, who are one person but with two names. So I'm not sure if they're Siamese twins or split personalities or if they're just two people that share one account. We've got Eric, Al, Amanda, Shane, and Adine. So thanks very much, guys. That's amazing that you've like joined up, especially for the 50th episode, which is pretty exciting. And it also takes us to, I think, I'm, I'm about 99 patrons now, which is mental that there's 99 people out there that are willing to support something just out of the kindness of their hearts. So that's amazing. Thanks very much, guys. This week's episode is kindly helped along by Anthony who through some sort of form of telepathy or magical foresight sent me the book as I was researching the episode already so I was like researching the episode and then I get a knock on the door books delivered and it's the book of the episode that I'd actually already started amazing so thanks very much Anthony you're either really lucky that you picked a book that just so happened to align, or you've utilised some kind of crystal skull time and space voodoo to know exactly what episode's coming. But yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate whatever you did, and it's really helpful, so thanks a lot. So without further ado, let's open her up. This is today's episode, and it's called Lurency Venom, The Watseeker Wonder. Watsika lies a few miles east of centre of Iroquois County, Illinois. Founded in 1865, it existed for several years prior as South Middleport, but it was renamed in 1865 and built up as the county seat. In previous years, the surrounding area had been home to Middleport, the county's earlier seat, before the Peoria and Okorka Railroad had been built, and various other disparate settlements. With the renaming in 1865, the majority, including the town of Middleport itself, had merged into Watsika, which, despite its relatively rapid growth, held only a modest but affluent population of around 1,500 people. Included in these 1,500 
with the Venom family, headed up by Thomas Jefferson Venom and his wife Lorinda Venom, who had married in Fayette County in 1855. They were a devoutly Orthodox Christian family and had seven children between 1857 and 1874. Florence Isabel, Henry, Elmer, Mary Laurency, Laura, Shyla, and Frank Venom, though it appears that only four survived infancy. Their fifth child and third daughter, Laura, died aged just one day old. During the time of what seekers renaming, the Venom family lived in a small settlement eight miles away, though the family name was well known in the area. Thomas's grandparents had been some of the first settlers in the county, whilst his brother was the owner of the first bank set up in Middleport. Thomas and Lorinda eventually settled in Watsika in 1871, living in a large frame house on the western side of the town. Aside from the difficult rate of infant mortality, they lived a fairly comfortable life. They were well-liked and respected by the local townsfolk, and they enjoyed healthy relationships throughout the town, including a brother who had been selected as mayor in 1872. Life was comfortable for the Venom family, that was at least, until July of 1877, when things with their second daughter, Laurency, took something of an odd turn into a difficult path that stretched the boundaries of their good local reputations. Laurency Venom was aged 13 years old in 1877. She had been born on the 16th of April, 1864, in the Milford Township, just south of what would become Watsika. Known as Rancy, she was unassuming, if not a little bit of a handful, playing with her brothers, 15-year-old Elmer, two years her senior, and eight-year-old Shyla, five years her junior. Aside from her youthful boisterousness, she was a girl of her time in every other way, diligent with helping her mother with the household chores and showing no signs of anything unusual. In the first week of July 1877, however, she took a turn towards an illness that most young girls would find hard to explain, even in modern times. She had been struggling to sleep, and she explained to her parents that There were persons in my room last night, and they called Rancy, Rancy, and I felt their breath on my face. Laurency did as most young children would in such a situation, and she woke her parents in a state of fear. But after her mother took her back to bed, she soon dozed off. The next night, a similar occurrence happened. Once again, Laurency was startled awake by persons in her room calling her name, and once again she woke her mother, who took her back to bed, sleeping alongside her until she fell asleep. This series of poor night's sleep was quite out of the ordinary. Until now, Laurency had never had any strange illnesses or troubles, save a bout of measles when she was nine years old. On the 11th of July, her condition worsened severely. As she sat on the living room floor sewing, her mother asked her if she could start making the supper, and as she stood, she stopped in her tracks, turned to her mother with a pale face, saying, Ma, I feel bad. I feel so queer. She then fell into a heap on the floor, appearing to be in the state of a person having a fit. After the initial fall, she lay rigid on the ground for almost five hours, before returning to consciousness, at which point she could only tell her mother that she felt very strange and queer. Her mother put her to bed and for the first time in several days she slept well. Her parents might have thought that this was at least the end to her troubled sleep, a theory which may well have been true, but it was just the start of a whole different series of troubles which would prove to be far more difficult to manage. The following day, the 12th of July, Laurency once again fell into an apparent fit, but this time, while she lay rigid on the floor, her muscles stiff and taut, her limbs unbending, she began to speak to her parents who could only watch on in a state of confusion and concern. This concern only grew when Laurency began speaking of spirits that she could see in the room together with her parents. Lying as if dead, she spoke freely, telling the family what persons and spirits she could see describing them and calling some of them by name. Among those she mentioned were her sister and brother, for she exclaimed, Oh mother, can't you see little Laura and Bertie? They're so beautiful. Alarming as the talk no doubt would have been, 
It held a second shock for Mr. and Mrs. Venom. The brother and sister that Laurency was speaking of had died when she was only three years old, and she had barely known them. Laura had only survived for a single day after her birth. Eventually, after several hours had passed, Laurency returned to normal again. Her rigidity eased, and her consciousness returned her to her normal self, but the fits continued. Throughout July, they only appeared to escalate in intensity, and by the end of summer, she was having regular fits where she would lie rigid and describe what she called heaven as a strange far-off spirit world, inhabited by spirits which Laurency had dubbed angels. The behaviour was naturally alarming to her parents, who were deeply religious and devoutly orthodox. Thankfully, in September, the fits appeared to have passed and the Venom household returned to a state of uneasy normalcy. If anyone harboured any anxiety that the fits would return, it would not have been unfounded, however. In late November, on the night of the 27th, Laurency fell painfully ill once again. She complained of stomach pains that would strike upwards of five or six times a day, every day for two weeks. During the attacks, she would contort her body in pain to such a degree that her head was said to have been able to touch her feet. During the attacks, she was said to return to her trance-like state and spoke of angels and spirits and of the world in which they lived that she called heaven. These bouts continued for a fortnight, with each passing day becoming a more and more difficult task for both Laurency through the pain and her mother who watched on helplessly. These painful fits came to an abrupt end on the 11th of December. However, though the pain seemed to have passed, the trances she fell into during only intensified further. Struggling with the difficult situation of watching their daughter suffer on a daily basis, the situation was becoming more and more bleak as outsiders of the family, local neighbours and the town's oldest families began to talk. They made suggestions that Laurency was insane and that she needed to be sent to an asylum. Laurency was, by the turn of the year, falling into these trances up to 12 times per day, and each time for anything between 1 and 8 hours. While she sat conversing with angels, she appeared in a state of happiness and blissful unawareness, as she told her concerned parents that she had travelled to heaven. Throughout the entire period of her fits, Mr and Mrs Venom had sought help for Laurency, she had been under the care of two local doctors. Up until the winter of 1877, Dr. L. N. Pitwood had tried and failed to get to grips with the effects of the mysterious sickness that was plaguing Laurency, and by the new year, he handed her care over to a second local doctor named Dr. Dewitt. Both Drs. Dewitt and Pitwood were modern practitioners of medicine, with patients throughout what seeker but after both had failed to achieve any results in their condition, calls came again to get Laurency help from the local asylum. Despite her parents' protestations, the Reverend B. M. Baker, Wasika's Methodist minister, wrote to the asylum, lodging an application for her to be sectioned. There were, however, some locals that held little faith in the asylum, and they sympathised. Chief amongst them were the local spiritualists Asa Berry Roth and his wife Anne, who saw in Laurency a condition they thought they might just recognise. The Roth family had been long-time residents of Watsika, living for a period just 200 metres from the Venom family home. In more recent years, they had moved into a large two-storey red brick house on the far side of the town. Asa had apprenticed as a shoemaker before he left his hometown aged 19 to seek his fortune. In 1841, he met and married Anne Fenton in Independence, Indiana, a town he had travelled to by canoe whilst travelling from town to town. The pair moved to Iroquois County in September of 1847, where he set up a shoe shop in Middleport and bought shares in a local sawmill. He worked at the sawmill, cutting timber for 18 months before becoming elected as Iroquois County Sheriff in 1854. He began reading law and he was appointed to the bar in 1857. The couple had 10 children, though six had died either in infancy or at young ages. William, Francis, Gaylord and George did not survive infancy, 
whilst Benton, Joseph and Frank had grown up and moved outside of Iroquois County to pursue their own careers. Their eldest daughter, Mary, had died in Watsika in 1865, aged 19 years old, whilst their surviving daughter, Minerva, lived in Watsika still, running a local book and stationery store. The red brick house they built was the first brick house in the town. The reputation of the Roth family in the community was first class, and despite suffering the death of so many children and huge financial losses on property and land through nationwide financial crashes of the mid-1870s, Asa Roth was always said to have maintained a cheerful exterior. Probably no man today is more highly esteemed in the community or enjoys the confidence amid respect of his fellow citizens in a fuller degree than the subject of this sketch. He is generous to a fault, just, considerate and independent. He practices what he teaches, as his neighbours know, and lets the broad mantle of charity cover a multitude of faults, rather than condemn too severely the erring. Surprisingly, considering their social position in the town, the Roths were active spiritualists. Although spiritualism in 1870s America was difficult to keep precise records of due to the nature of the followers' aversion to organised groups, the belief had an estimated number of practitioners somewhere in the hundreds of thousands, with some estimates counting into the millions. This rise in the spiritualist movement had begun in the first half of the 19th century and could be attributed most easily to industrialization and globalization. As people moved more, so too did they come into contact with new ideas. Hand in hand with large movements of people, however, also came new disease, and the mortality rate, especially that of children and infants, was still painfully high. With the invention of new technologies, such as the telegraph, anything began to seem possible. People entertained new, out there ideas more readily, and this, paired with the failings of Orthodox Christianity to nurture the solace of an eternal afterlife, people began seeking new, more comforting philosophies that could alleviate their anxieties and reduce the grief they often felt for their lost family members. In essence, spiritualists believed in the existence of an eternal afterlife, where spirits of the dead lived on in perpetuity, and hence, they could be contacted and conversed with freely through the practices of mediumship, trances and seances. Spirits all had the innate ability to communicate. However, a spirit medium was often needed on the side of the living to allow the communications to be received. No anyone could become a medium through study and the practice of the art. Despite its large and growing following, spiritualism was still a relatively unpopular belief system in generally orthodox towns. And although the public narrative towards spiritualism was one of believe if you must, but don't preach it, heavy prejudices fell on both sides of the fence, with spiritualists considering orthodox believers to be unenlightened bigots, whilst the opposing view was that the spiritualists were blasphemous heathens mixing heaven and earth in such a blasé manner. Despite these divisions, the Roths appeared to be living a fairly peaceful life in Morsica, and whilst being far from a spiritualist stronghold, the population seemed to turn a blind eye towards their religion. At least, all the time they weren't making a scene of it. Asser and Anne Roth took it upon themselves to intervene with the committal of lurency to the insane asylum. They had been watching the developments with the young Venom girl with great interest, not least because they believed she may have been channeling spirits when she spoke of heaven and of angels, but because they too had a daughter that had suffered from symptoms that they thought seemed similar, though she had died 12 years previously. This time, they hoped they might be able to offer some help, and so they suggested to Thomas Venom to try their particular brand of alternative therapy instead. They believed that rather than insanity, lurency may have been suffering from a form of possession, or an invasion of foreign minds, as they put it to Mr. Venom. Lawrence's family initially had their doubts, though after much persuasion, and very possibly, given their own orthodox leanings, a heavy dose of desperation, they permitted the Roths to enlist help and see what they could do. At the very least, it might delay Lawrence's committal to the asylum a little longer. The Roths contacted a spiritualist acquaintance named Dr. E. Winchester Stevens, 
a doctor and spiritualist from Janesville, Wisconsin, and on January the 31st, 1878, Asaroff and Dr. Stevens visited the Venom's house to meet with Laurency. Upon their first meeting, they were introduced to Laurency already in the midst of one of her trances. The girl sat near the stove in a common chair, her elbows on her knees, her hands under her chin, feet curled up on the chair, eyes staring, looking every way like an old hag. She sat for a time in silence until Dr. Stevens moved his chair when she savagely warned him not to come nearer. She appeared sullen and crabbed, calling her father Old Black Dick and her mother Old Granny. She refused to be touched, even to shake hands, and was reticent and sullen to all save the doctor, with whom she entered freely into conversation. When Dr. Stevens asked Laurency her name, she replied that she was called Katrina Hogan, a 63-year-old woman from Germany. Though after further questioning, she changed tact and admitted that she had been lying. Her name was, in fact, Willie Ganning, a young man who had run away from his father, Peter Ganning. She gave a short biographical overview of Willie's life and explained that after running away, she had gotten into many difficult situations and gone by several names before an eventual death. Stevens asked her why he was back possessing Lurency, to which she replied simply, Because I want to be. Lurency then switched the questions onto the doctor, asking, What is your name? Where do you live? Are you married? Have children? How many boys? How many girls? What is your occupation? What kind of doctor? What did you come to Watsika for? Have you ever been to the South Pole, North Pole, Europe? Australia, Egypt, Ceylon, Bonaire, Sandwich Islands? Do you lie, get drunk, steal, swear, use tobacco, tea, coffee? Do you go to church, pray? Stevens dutifully answered the questions and so too put them to Mr. Roth on behalf of Laurency, who refused to ask him directly. Being asked the questions bore little significance to Stevens though he did take note that Laurency was displaying a remarkable geographical knowledge. After an hour and a half of this questioning back and forth between the Doctor and the spirit supposedly possessing Laurency, the Doctor and Mr. Roth made to leave the house. As they did so, however, Laurency collapsed onto the floor, falling again into her familiar unresponsive trance, stiff and rigid. Stephen sat down and held Laurency's hands outstretched, asking questions this time directly to Laurency herself. Laurency replied to the doctor with the grace and sweetness of an angel and explained to the doctor that she was currently in heaven. Stephen's asked her about the evil ones, Katrina and Willie, which she allowed to possess her body, and Laurency replied, that she knew of them and that she much regretted having them control her. Here, Stevens, who saw a pathway to a potential cure, suggested to Laurency that she instead focused her time, while she was currently in heaven, on finding a better, more positive spirit with which she could allow to possess her. She took about and inquired of those she saw and described and named to find someone who would prevent the cruel and insane ones from returning to annoy her and her family. She soon said, there are a great many spirits here who would glad to come, and she again proceeded to give names and descriptions of persons long since deceased, some that she had never known, but were known by older persons present. Of all the names she spoke of, Laurency said that there was one which the angels desired to come, and that she was a spirit who would, herself, like to come into Laurency's body. Her name is Mary Roth. Mary Roth was a name familiar to those in the room with Laurency. She was, in fact, the eldest of the Roth's daughters, born on the 8th of October 1846 in Warren County, Indiana. At age one, her parents moved to Middleport, and in the spring of 1847, when Mary had been around six months old, she had been taken ill, suffering from an apparent fit. Her parents had little hope for her survival. To their surprise, however, after several days, it appeared that her condition had improved, 
and by the end of two weeks' rest, she was, to all who looked on, well and healthy once more. It was, though, a short period of calm. Three weeks later, she once again suffered a similar fit. These fits continued throughout her childhood at intervals of three to five weeks, until she reached the age of ten when they intensified. Mary would at times suffer clusters of fits that would last for several days before phasing out and leaving her a brief period of respite, but always returning. Naturally, these constant periods of fits were taking their toll on Mary. She would become unhappy and despondent after a bout of fitting. Outside of the fits, Mary was otherwise a perfectly normal child. She studied music and was considered bright and well advanced in her education for her age. Her parents were taking note of her mental stability, however, and had noticed the heavy toll the fits were taking on Mary. When she was 15 years old, they decided to make serious medical attempts to cure her. She was seen by several specialists and even underwent 18 months of hydrotherapy treatment in Peoria, Illinois, a form of natural therapy that had seen a sharp comeback throughout the 19th century when patients were feeling more detached from traditional medical practices that were becoming more and more scientific and difficult to understand for the layman. Hydrotherapy encompassed a broad range of practices, all involving water, such as hot and cold baths or hosing patients with water of varying temperatures in an effort to stimulate blood circulation and utilise various water pressures. Despite all of their efforts, however, Mary showed few signs of any improvement and she often complained of a lump of pain inside her head. She took to employing bloodletting by leeches, attaching them to her temples to relieve the pressure she felt on her skull. Mary enjoyed it so much so that she would utilise the practice on her own time, making pets of the various leeches. Despite her taking to the bloodletting, however, it failed to prove effective enough, and on Saturday, July the 16th, 1864, whilst Mary was 19 years old, she took a knife into the garden and hacked away at her arm until passing out from blood loss. Upon her regaining consciousness, in a state of utter despair, she became violent and it took five men to hold her down to the bed. She had lost a considerable amount of weight over the previous months, and now, after losing so much blood, she lay in bed in a state of shock and was unable to recall any of the people around her. She had, however, in her clash with near death, gained a curious new sense. She had no sense whatever of sight, feeling or hearing in a natural way, as was proved by every test that could be applied. She could read blindfolded and do everything as readily as when in health by her natural sight. She would dress, stand before the glass, open and search in drawers, pick up loose pins, or do any and all things readily and without annoyance under heavy blindfolding. Among the behaviours and tasks that she demonstrated whilst under blindfold, apparently unable to see with any natural sight, she took up an encyclopedia, looked up the entry for blood, and read aloud the entire column. And on another occasion, she took a box of letters written to her from friends and family, and she read each one of them out to the room. When Mr. Roth and others, including the local reverend, attempted to trick her by placing their own letters amongst Mary's own, she would notice the deception immediately and toss the letters not addressed to her across the room violently. With the physicians, her peculiar state or condition was called catalepsy. With the clergy, it was one of the mysteries of God's providence, with which we should have little to do. With editors, who were obliged to be wise or silent, it was fits or some unaccountable phenomenon. All, with untiring effort, tried to solve the mystery and learn what it was that produced such strange and wonderful manifestations. The brief period earned Mary a small degree of local fame, as many of the citizens of Wadzika came to witness her powers of unnatural sight, and her story was written of in the local newspaper. Her fits still continued, however, and there were definite pushes on the family to place Mary into the asylum. On July the 5th, whilst taking a three-day visit to Peoria, she woke, ate breakfast, and then retired to bed to lay down. A short time after, 
Her parents heard her scream and they took to her bedroom, finding her in a fit on the bed. This time, she was not able to regain consciousness. Mary died that morning, July the 5th, after a difficult and turbulent life, aged just 19 years old. It was these fits in Lurency that so inspired the Roths to inquire with Mr. and Mrs. Venom. They had seen similar troubles with their own child, and so too had they seen how little help an asylum could be. Their intervention into the situation of Lurency Venom can almost be seen as an act of retribution for any perceived failings they might have lingering from the death of their own child. It was a curious development that when Dr. Stevens suggested to Lurency to find a more positive spirit to possess her, she happened to cross Mary Rock, deceased 12 years prior, when Lurency was just three years old. Naturally, as a dedicated spiritualist, Mr. Roth was more than happy with the possibility now presented to him to speak with his deceased daughter once again. And so, when Lurency suggested to Dr. Stevens that the spirit of Mary Roth was willing to help her, he immediately interjected, Yes, let her come. We'll be glad to have her come. The next day, on the morning of 1st of February, Mr. Venom stopped into the office of Mr. Roth, explaining that it appeared Mary had come as promised, and he requested Mr. Roth to stop by. She seems like a child, real homesick, wanting to see her ma and pa and brothers. As it turned out, Lurency had been acting more than just a little homesick. It appeared that she had been entirely consumed by the spirit of Mary Roth, and she failed to recognise any of the Venom family nor the house in which she had spent the previous 14 years living. She had become mild, polite and timid, and at times wept as she insisted that she wanted to return home. This behaviour continued for the next week, until finally Mrs. Roth and her daughter Minerva went to visit the Venom house to see for themselves the purported change in Lurency's behaviour. As they approached the house, Lurency leant from the window and upon seeing their arrival, turned to her own mother and father, who she was still failing to recognise, and yelled, There comes my ma and sister, Nervy. Nervy was the name that Mary had called Minerva in childhood, long before the birth of Lurency herself. She hugged them upon their arrival. However, after they left that afternoon, Mr and Mrs Venom noted that Lurency had become only more homesick. She often fell to fits of tears, begging to be allowed to return home. Eventually, Mr. and Mrs. Venom somewhat reluctantly broached Mr. Roth with the idea that Lurency should go and stay in the Roth house to see if it might bring about a more positive effect. The Roths agreed, and on the 11th of February, Lurency went with Mrs. Roth to stay longer with the family. As they walked across town, Lurency headed into an entirely different house, claiming that it was her home, and it took some persuasion on the part of Mrs. Venom to convince Lurency that she was mistaken. As it turned out, the house that she had taken for her home was in fact the house that the Roths had initially occupied during the lifetime of Mary, though they had since moved after her death. When they reached the house where the Roth family now resided, Lurency greeted the family as if they were her own, recognising them all and hugging them dearly. Mr Roth asked her how long the spirit of Mary intended to stay, and Lurency replied that she would stay until sometime in May, and so it was that Lurency would spend the next three months and ten days living in the Roth household, under the care of the Roths, with Lurency playing every bit the part of their dead daughter, Mary. Not everyone in the town of Watsika was so ready to believe this state of affairs. As already mentioned, the majority of the town were Orthodox Christians, and spiritualism, despite its large and ever-expanding following, had its fair share of critics. The local minister, Reverend Baker, told Mr. Roth that, I think you'll see a time when you will wish you had sent her to the asylum. Some of their closer relatives were even more scathing in their opinions. I would sooner follow a girl of mine to the grave than have her go to the Roths and be made a spiritualist. Meanwhile, Dr. Jewett stuck to his guns, 
convinced that his diagnosis of catalepsy had been the correct one. All the while, the sceptics spoke behind the backs of the Roth family, and the doctor held fast to his diagnosis. Lurency was showing far more unusual symptoms. She recognised everyone that lived in the Roth house. She continued to call Minerva by her childhood nickname of Nervi, and she recognised neighbours, family, friends, and greeted them all as if they were long-lost friends. At the same time, whenever members of her own family visited, she still failed to recognise them beyond that which she only recently knew. In a letter to Dr. Stevens, written by Asa Roth, he stated, Mary is perfectly happy. She recognises everybody and everything that she knew when in her body 12 or more years ago. She knows nobody nor anything whatever that is known by lurency. Mr. Venom has been to see her and also her brother Henry at different times, but she don't know anything about them. Mrs. Venom is still unable to come and see her daughter. She has been nothing but Mary ever since she has been here and knows nothing but what Mary knew. She has entered the trance once every other day for some days. She is perfectly happy. Aside from people, she also recognised many of Mary's old possessions, including an old box of letters and an old hat that Mary once wore. When she entered the Roth household, she instantly recognised the piano and she even attempted to play it, though the attempt was not entirely successful. She attempted to play and sing as of yore. The songs were the ones of our youth. As we stood listening, the familiar notes were hers, although emanating from another's lips. The effect, however, was only partially successful. Turning with a smile to the family present, she remarked, I cannot make my fingers work just right. Mary didn't stay in Laurency's body exclusively, however, and there were times when other spirits made their way in. There was a woman from Tennessee, and the grandmother of the Roth servant, Charlotte, complete with arched back, hobbling gait, and a talent for knitting. When asked about Lurency's body, Mary appeared to understand that it was not her own, but that of Lurency's, and that she was merely controlling it as a spirit. And when asked about the arm that she had cut before in life, she pulled up her sleeve to show her scars before realising... Oh, she said, this is not the arm, that one is in the ground. She also displayed acts of clairvoyance, when one evening she told Frank Roth to be careful and that he needed to be watched, for she believed he would soon fall ill. That same night at 2am, he woke in a fever and drifted in and out of consciousness. The Roths sent for Dr. Stevens, who they believed to be across town. Stevens had been at their house earlier that night, and he had told them himself that that was where he would be going next. However, as the evening unravelled, the doctor had been called back to the neighbour's house, and he had ended up stopping over for the night. Mary repeated this information, and so sure enough, when Mr. Roth called next door to check, there was Dr. Stevens, just as Mary had predicted. She also spoke of houses that she had not visited in person, describing family members, furnishings and layouts in detail, all that were deemed correct by the witnesses. As time went on, Lurency's reputation in the town continued to climb. Accusations of insanity fell by the wayside and many agreed that she was now acting and behaving like a well-mannered child. Time was running out for Mary, however. Lurency had predicted that she would return sometime in May, and so it was that on May the 19th, Mary left the body of Laurency for a short period, when she was reunited with her mother, who was delighted to see her daughter so well. It was short-lived, and soon Laurency was once again possessed by Mary. However, on May the 21st, as she had earlier predicted to Mr. Roth, she prepared to leave for good. She walked across town at 11am with her sister Minerva, where she seemed to jump back and forth between Mary and Laurency in quick succession, before finally, as she approached the Venom house, she came to be herself and Mary was gone from the body of Laurency. The only remark from Laurency was that she had felt something as though she had been asleep. The Watsika Republican, the editor of which had witnessed many of the strange interactions between Dr. Stevens, the Roths and Laurency, 
wrote the following article regarding her return. The meeting with her parents at the home was very affecting and now she seems to be a healthy, happy little girl, going about noting things she saw before she was stricken and she recognises changes that have since taken place. This is a remarkable case and the fact that we cannot understand such things does not do away with the existence of these unaccountable manifestations. After Laurency returned to her home with her family, she continued to live happily with little return to the world of spirits, though she did channel Mary on several occasions when the Roths came to visit. In 1882, she married a man named George Binning, a farmer living three miles outside of Botsika, where she moved for two years until, in 1884, she moved to Kansas. She went on to have 11 children before eventually passing away in 1952, aged 87 years old. When considering the possibilities of what happened to Laurency Venom during her time at the Roth House, we can either accept the narrative as told by Dr. Stevens, or we can choose to read between the lines to develop another theory. The most common explanation is that Laurency really was cured of her bouts of depression. However, it was not by any spirit means, rather a simple series of suggestion. When Dr. Stevens invited Laurency to choose a different, more positive spirit, he was inviting Laurency to continue with her second personality, whether that was brought about by any psychological or physiological reasons, or purely out of a childlike jest, but instead to channel it in a more positive manner. In essence, Stevens had removed the negative and damaging influences from the situation and replaced them with one which could be seen as positive and healing. He also stated that his spirit would heal Laurency, and in asking Laurency herself when she would return, he placed a finality to the affair. All of this embedded in the form of suggestion that the current situation was simply an aid to recovery for Laurency, and that she would be well by the date that she herself had set. This theory concludes that whether or not he knew what he was doing, he had in effect cured Laurency through quite earthly means. This theory, however, can only be accepted if one is to dismiss the many testimonies and volumes of circumstantial evidence of the more unusual aspects of the case. The clairvoyance, knowledge of things unseen or unknown, and the sheer amount of foresight needed to play a role as someone else's daughter for several months. The case of Laurency Venom has been studied several times since its inception, and revisited at least twice by eminent researchers of the paranormal. In April of 1890, Dr. Hodgson from the Society for Psychical Research visited Watsika to interview many of the original witnesses. Though Dr. Stevens had been long since dead, having passed away less than 10 years after the publication of the events of Watsika, and Laurency herself had moved from the area, he did manage to interview the Roth family and much of the local townsfolk who put their name as witnesses in Dr. Stevens' original account. After speaking with all the witnesses, he concluded that he could find no satisfactory explanation except the spiritualistic. Worthy of note here is that whilst the Society for Psychical Research has had a spotty past, it has at least attempted to remain on the side of science, and Dr. Hodgson himself had undertaken his trip to Watsika fresh off the back of exposing two of the largest spiritualist fraudsters in the game earning him the title of the Sherlock Holmes of professional detectives of the supernatural. He was described by those that knew him as no spiritualist, and in less formal conversation, a doubting Thomas. So what did happen to Laurency Venom during those few months in 1878? Was she really possessed by the deceased daughter of the Roths, or were they simply stories made up by an overzealous preacher of spiritualism? Whether or not one is to believe the original account or not, it seems fair to assume that this is a case where spiritualism triumphed one way or another. In the words of H. Addington Bruce, writing in the New York Tribune in 1908, If the responsibility for the creation rests on Dr. Stevens and the Roths, to them likewise belongs the credit for the cure. Laurency Venom, ladies and gentlemen, the Watsika Wonder, 
it's a story that raises an awful lot of questions and quite a few interesting asides as well. So we're going to get to that as well as some of the observations that I kind of noted down as I was researching the episode after a little bit of capitalism with these short advert breaks. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books, which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS, and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month, including your first credit to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash darkhistories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool, but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories patron. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So first up, before we even start anything, I think we need to state here that Laurency Venom is, I mean, she was definitely a Slytherin with that name, right? That's a JK Rowling name if ever I've heard one. But aside from that, one of the things that I, I noticed and found quite surprising actually was that this kind of had a happy ending for once, which is, I think, is possibly one of the first times any Dark Histories episodes had a quite uplifting ending. And she went on to live till, you know, she was in her 80s and she had 11 children, got married. Her husband wasn't at all into spiritualism, so she just kind of let the story fall and got on with her life, which was kind of amazing. And not only that, but she got possessed in the 19th century in a relatively religious place and she didn't suffer any abuse, which was awesome because normally these stories of sort of, you know, old stories of possession, 99% of the time end in sort of terrible abuse. And this one didn't. So, you know, for once, I feel like this is kind of an uplifting episode in a way. I mean, Mary was kind of tragic, but outside of that, you know, the, the general kind of core of it was fairly uplifting. So that that was quite nice to actually write an episode that was happy for once. So whether or not it was true, and if if we believe it, I'm always suspicious, and I've mentioned it before, that when you look at these old texts, because all we have is, okay, so essentially we just got circumstantial evidence with one text written by, well, there's more than one text. There's two or three written, like, long-form pieces. But the main text is just really the main body of evidence comes from this one text that was written by Dr. Stevens, who was obviously there. And I'm always suspicious of what horse they had in the race. And obviously, Dr. Stevens was... A fairly into spiritualism and seemed quite a heavy sort of preacher type. So you, you've got to sort of take the book in particular as his way of kind of spreading the word, you know. But aside from even spreading the word, there, there was some passages in it which, it which really stuck out to me as 
showing a lot of Stevens's character and the situation at the time. So when he's talking of um, Asa B. Roth and his and Anne Roth, uh, he's he's talking about how in the town of Watsika there there were people who were willing to help Lurency rather than just send her to the insane asylum. And he goes on to speak of Mr. Roth. So it reads, There were in the city of Watsika at this time persons who had more humanity than bigotry. So he's already kind of throwing his hat in the ring there. And then he goes on to explain the Roths as earnest, self-sacrificing souls imbued with the conviction that uncultivated spirits had something to do with the case. You know, there's the, the words he's using there, it's earnest, self-sacrificing souls. And then he talks about non-spiritualists who wanted to put her in the asylum. And the, and the words here are, I mean, it's fairly clear, really. To take a lovely child from the bosom of an affectionate family, to imprison her among maniacs, to be ruled and cared for by ignorant and bigoted strangers who knew less of catalepsy than a blind materialist does of immortality. The words used there are really interesting. First of all, he's, he makes Lurency out uh, to be very weak and in need of protection. And, you know, she's a lovely child that if people take her away, will be removed from the bosom of an affectionate family. So the, the word there, you know, it's all like, you know, this lovely, caring family and this lovely, kind girl is going to be taken away and be imprisoned by maniacs to be ruled and cared for by ignorant and bigoted strangers. They, and these are all obviously people who aren't spiritualists. And then, of course, the spiritualists come along. And these earnest, self-sacrificing souls imbued with the conviction that uncultivated spirits had something to do with the case. You know, so the, the spiritualists are earnest, self-sacrificing souls as opposed to the non-spiritualists who are ignorant and bigoted strangers <laughs> um, and, and maniacs that want to imprison this helpless young girl. You know, it's pretty obvious us versus them language. And I think it says an awful lot about Stevens for a start and also the situation between spiritualists and non-spiritualists at the time. He's obviously harbours an awful lot of bitterness towards the situation. And I mean, it also goes to show exactly who the book was written for. You know, it's preaching to the choir in many ways. It's clearly written for an audience of other spiritualists it shows an awful lot about the time and the attitudes of the spiritualists so in a in a sense like that's only a one paragraph in this book but it shows exactly why the book was written and it really shows up exactly why if he wanted to make this up he was certainly motivated and had a reason to he was preaching, obviously, his belief in spiritualism. And, of course, what better way of doing that than providing evidence? So that's always, you know, where I come from in these sort of cases. I always look for those sorts of things. And in this one, it's to me, it's quite apparent. And, of course, there's, there's, there's lots of other small things throughout. I mean, it's all circumstantial evidence. Uh, first... One thing, like small thing that sort of stuck out to me was when she was Katrina Hogan, why didn't they ask her to speak German if she said she came from Germany and she was a 63-year-old lady? Quite often, you know, you see old possession cases. Or one of the things that is often mentioned is that they, they could speak several different languages and that they previously had no knowledge of. So why did they not ask her to speak German? That That would have been a relatively scientific test that could be repeated, but they didn't. So, you know, that, that was just small things like that throughout that, that sort of stuck out to me. Well, they, they didn't, you know, we've got this body of evidence that's written in this book, but none of it was really testable. And the things that were, they didn't do. So I found that obviously sort of as another strike against it. But having said that, you know, at the end of the day, you can't entirely write off circumstantial evidence. 
you can't just say, oh, just because it's circumstantial, it's it's irrelevant. It's it's all nonsense. You know, if only a fraction of the things that are written about in this book are true, it casts it in a completely different light. Because there was there were a lot of things that happened. A lot of them have probably been embellished. But even I say, like, if a fraction even if one of the things that she did was true, suddenly it's like, okay, you have to take this more seriously now. Apart from that, I thought Stevens, Dr. Stevens, whether or not you believe in his beliefs, you know, that in and believe that it was all sort of uh, spirits and all the rest of it. What he did with Lurency was kind of a genius masterstroke in suggesting that she replaced the bad spirits with the positive spirits. And, you know, whether or not, say, whether or not he meant it or not, it's kind of irrelevant because he implanted the idea that she could get well via spirits. You know, he sort of played her game in a way. So if, if you believe that she was just having a lark and making it all up, he basically went along with it and played their game. It was almost like they kind of, you know, so let's say the Roths weren't spiritualists and all of this was just people kind of going along with her kind of game. They essentially just let it play out, you know, until she got bored of it. At which point she was considerably better. I think there's another thing to note as well is that, um, you know, this happened when she was between 13 and 14 years old. So obviously that's a difficult time for any young girl or boy, really, you know, um, what with puberty and all the rest of it. And it's interesting that when she returns, her mum said that she was more womanly and she made these changes from she was playing with her brothers before and, and kind of monkeying about in the street. And then after this, she became more womanly and, and grown up. And it's it's like, okay, so essentially this was during a transition period for her that perhaps she was just finding difficult. You know, it doesn't have to take great leaps to start coming up with these kind of theories which can explain away a lot of what was going on in just normal, earthly, psychological ways. But it's like I say, that said, it only takes one of these things to have been true for it to be quite weird anyway as far as Mary Roth is concerned um, it seems in all likelihood that she was either epileptic or or she had a brain tumour I, I, I wondered if it was a brain tumour because she talked about having that difficult pain in her head and a lot of pressure in her head before she died and she was having fits. I don't really know too much about that sort of stuff. I didn't really research it or look up because it's just an, an interesting aside, really. But, you know, it, I figured that she was either epileptic or or had this tumour. And, and, and I think, I say, I don't know this for sure, and this is not anything. Really, this is a question for, for you that I have, if anyone knows this sort of stuff, is if you have a brain tumour, don't you tend to sort of have hallucinations and things like that anyway. Uh, and also, aren't you prone to forgetfulness and things like that? So, you know, she, she had that fit that was quite severe. And when she came round, she didn't recognise any of her family. That that not that all signs of brain tumour? I, I, don't, I don't know for sure. Like I say, I, I, I haven't, certainly haven't researched any of this stuff because for me it was just more of a, an aside and like a little thought that I had. But yeah, let me know if, if that's true or not I don't know but yeah otherwise it's a really interesting story and I say I'm probably sounding like a terrible skeptic like I always am but I think why I sometimes sound like a skeptic in in these cases is because for me it's more interesting to try and explain away the situation because we have all of the circumstantial evidence in this book and I'm not saying I don't believe any of it all I'm trying to do is explain away the things that can be explained away. So, so that makes me sort of come across like I'm trying to rip it apart and be like super capitalist sceptic. But I'm not. All I'm trying to do is approach it rationally. And anything that's left over is then unexplainable, you know. And I say so I'm willing to accept in this case that there was an awful lot that she did. And like I say, it only takes one thing 
to cast it in a very different light. I, I'm probably least less skeptical of the uh, the, uh, the concept of someone being possessed than I am of Doctor Stevens' book on this. You know, all the pamphlet that he'd written. Because I say, when when you read it with a lot of that language, the, the kind of us versus them language in there, you immediately can see, okay, you've got a horse in this race, and and you've you you you're clearly heavily invested. So nothing that you write is going to be objective. So that immediately casts all of the evidence into doubt. Um, but yeah, anyway. Really interesting story. Uh, I thought it was quite nice to do an uplifting story for once. We will be talking about this on the live stream next week. Hopefully we'll get some people on that are kind of more from an opposing view um, to me. And then we can have some really good debate on it and discussion. Because that would be really cool. Moving on from that. This was the 50th episode of Dark Histories. That's amazing. I want to thank everyone for helping me to make 50 episodes really because I certainly haven't done this by myself you know if it wasn't for people listening and contacting me by email sometimes kind of positive feedback and other times people emailing me telling me I'm offending their religion and things like that that that's fine you know all all any sort of contact from people uh, and help and support and and you know sharing with their friends and writing reviews and of course the patron has been amazing and all the people that have bought me books and coffee and everything it's so good like like like, like all of this stuff is for me i probably would have stopped making this podcast a long time ago if it wasn't for all of this stuff because it makes me feel like i'm not making this podcast by myself for myself or any rest it makes me feel like the podcast is a more social thing that I'm making with all you guys so you know it's amazing that we've managed to make 50 episodes and I really just want to say thanks for helping and supporting and you know making the episodes with me really because I do that is that might sound cheesy but I do feel like the episodes are communal kind of podcasting I don't I don't know maybe that sounds super cheesy but that's just how I've always felt of it um and and it's funny because sometimes I say, you know, I refer to the podcast as we, and I wonder if people think that I've got like a big team, but that's not what I mean. I mean, you know, us all, like me and you guys listening, us all have managed to make the podcast. And it's just the way I've always felt about it. Like I say, I don't know if that sounds cheesy and stupid and a little bit disingenuous, but that's just the way I've always felt about it. So yeah, I just really want to say thanks for, you know, getting us to 50 episodes because it's been awesome making it and here's to another 50 more and to celebrate the 50 episodes anyway this was the whole point this is what i meant to say is there is a dark histories merchandise store and it's on darkhistories.com if you go on there there'll be a link in the top corner that says store you can go and check that out there's some t-shirts and stuff that i designed and to celebrate the 50th episode it's gonna have a 20 percent discount and the discount will run from today for the next two weeks until the next episode, basically. So from the day this episode's released on Sunday until the Sunday after, there'll be 20% off in the merchandise store. So so if there's anything in there you fancied, now's the time to grab it. So the discount code for that is 5020 and stick that in the cart. I'm just now realizing that that's an awful discount code. Um, it's F-I-F-T-Y-2-0, 5020. Stick that in a cart and you get 20% off everything in the shop. It's like hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, that kind of jazz. That's all there really is to say for this episode, I guess. Um, Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to follow on social media, you can do so. So if you go to darkhistories.com, all the links are there. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And if you would like to contact me, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. If you'd like to be a patron, again, that would be amazing. You can do so by going to darkhistories.com. You'll find the link there under support. So yeah, all of those things, darkhistories.com is the place to be really for that. Thanks very much for listening. 
I'll see you again. Well, for a main episode in a couple of weeks, but we'll be running a live stream next weekend. And obviously there's yesterday, today, every day now. So I'll be droning in your ears if you wish tomorrow, I guess. So thanks very much for listening. Take care, have a great week and sleep tight.